Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Happy to be joined by Josh Blank, the research director for the Texas Politics Project. Um, how are we this morning, Josh? Doing pretty well. It's a little, little sticky today, a little hot. Well, I was just going to say, you seem relatively well-appointed given you know, so, the you-know-what. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's like, you know, we, when we record these things in the summer, I like to embrace the summer, so I might be wearing shorts. There yeah. might be sandals. But then once the kids come back and they're on campus and I, you know, I work here, I feel like, you know, I should, I should put on some pants. Got to be presentable. So in other but, words, you're saying your legs are a little clammy. My legs are covered. <laughs> covered my, and a little my, clammy. My toes are in socks. Yeah, there's all kinds of things. <laughs> anyway, that's not very interesting. This is not what you came for for this podcast, <laughs> my sartorial choices. Well, I, you know, I, who knows what people come to this podcast well, for. So, fair, no, I think we have a pretty good sense question. Of, of what our what our niche audience is. So, so we're recording on Tuesday, August 22nd, as Josh implied, day after school starts at the University of Texas at Austin. And for some reason, there's a student listening. Welcome back. Um, and, and the trial of suspended Attorney General Ken Paxton is set to begin two weeks from today. Countdown. It's it's getting close. On September 5th, the, the day after Labor Day. You know, I, and I've thought about this, another stray thought, you know, in a podcast intro of stray thoughts, you know, it's going to really ruin a lot of people's Labor Day <laughs> yeah, this year. Yeah, I suppose that's Not true. a lot, but, you know. I, you know, I, I kind of doubt a lot of the senators are going to take one last Labor Day jaunt, although you, who you knows? don't think so. <laughs> um, <laughs> since we last podcasted about a week ago, we've had kind of an avalanche of new information, some of which was released actually the day we recorded last week, um, and a few notable developments in the filings for the trial. So to kind of set what we want to talk about, and we're going to wind up I'm talking a bit about a post we did on the Texas Politics Project very recently that um, we'll point people to. So what have we seen? In the case, the House managers, essentially the prosecution in the impeachment trial, filed a bucket of pretty hard-hitting responses to Paxton's motions that had been filed by his his defense team uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, and we talked about the defense motions on the podcast a couple weeks ago when we were lucky enough to have Lauren Magai on the on the podcast, and that was right after they had been made public, um, you know, and we're going to get back to one aspect of the back and forth that we wrote the post about that was based on all that. Um, but in the last week since we last recorded, the House managers dropped a pretty big bomb that was the focus of almost all of the attention in the case over the weekend, and that was a tranche of some four thousand pages of evidentiary exhibits that have, for the most part, really driven coverage of the case, uh, certainly in the Texas press, since they were released last Thursday night. Um, you know, the highlights are all in the coverage. You know, for listeners here, you, said, I, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to go and start kind of going through all those filings, though, you know, it's a lot of documents. I mean, I was feeling, frankly, a little bitchy that I had to read, you know, 250 pages of briefs you know, overnight last week when the, the House managers released their responses. Then they, I'm glad they waited a few days to release all of this. But, you know, some of the things that people will have seen in the news is, for example, the the Excel spreadsheet of the Uber rides that were, you know, with the data from those rides, times, places, um, you know, from the sort of crypto Uber account that the, the attorney general appears to have been sharing with Nate Paul um, and, and lots of other, you know, lots of other things that, you know, there's a good, there's an interesting diagram. This got a little less play, but I thought was interesting. There's an interesting diagram of all of Nate Paul's LLCs that were used to kind of construct his business dealing. And there are a lot of them. It looks like a, you know, it looks like a UT org chart. 
know. Right. I mean, you know, that's the thing. I mean, <clears throat> the 4,000 pages or so, you know, it's interesting because there's sort of these sort of, there's these two things that kind of come out of it, right? One is sort of the thing that is really driving the coverage, which is like burner phones and, you yeah. know, secret, you know, lift, you know, secret Uber accounts and how many times packs and seems to allege to have visited his mistress, you know, throughout right. this. And, and to some extent, I think, you know, to me, actually, a lot of this stuff was already really been alleged. I mean, I don't think there's a lot of new information, but it does like detail in a lot of ways the links that they both went to to try to kind of cover their tracks. Yes, a little bit more clearly in, in a number of different settings. in a number of different settings. Yeah. And so there's sort of that piece of it, which is you know a direct response to this idea. Well, the house has no evidence, and it's like, well, okay, hold on a second. You yeah. know, here's all this stuff that we've been talking about, and we've said that it turns out we weren't lying. You know, in the committees, these, this is data that we have about this. And then there's all the legal arguments also, which is about how this case should proceed and all that stuff, right. which is getting a lot less coverage because, frankly, it's just more complicated, I mean, in yeah, some ways. Right. Um, so, I mean, it is true that, you know, you kind of go and look at this this coverage and what really came out was like, you know, burner phones and stuff like that. Yeah. But But I think, you know, for us, in some ways, you know, the sort of intersection of the reception of sort of the... The facts of the case, on the one hand, is they become more and more clear to people, you know, what did and did not occur. But then the intersection with sort of these legal arguments, all kind of falling under this political umbrella, yeah, makes for kind of what's I think what you know you and I are probably most interested. Well, yeah, there. I mean, there's, there are a lot of very interesting, you know, affidavits of accounts of meetings, things that took place between various actors as, you know, in various phases of this, yeah. and it's a you know it's a it's a pretty deep, uh, uh, you know, it's not just a rabbit hole, it's a warren. <laughs> it's a warren of, you know, of, I can't remember what you call a, a group of rabbits, but it's a, there's a lot, there's a lot of tunnels here to, to be burrowing into. Um, so there were also a lot of um, developments, if you will, kind of away from the ball, as it were, away from, you know, the two, the back and forth between the litigants. And we are going to get back to some of that. So, you know, some of those that were also interesting in terms of, again, as you say, the political context of the case and, you know, the drum we've been beating a little bit in here, I think, and about the political nature of this process. And there was a there was a line in one of the filings by the House managers in response to the defense manager that, you know, referred this to, you know, capital P political. Yeah. Right. In terms of the nature of this. Now, that was a little bit of a play on the Federalist Papers, but, you know. Be that as it may, I like the point. So, but some of these uh, developments. So, um, late last week, Lieutenant Governor Patrick appointed Mark Brown, who had served as a as a judge on the Fourteenth Court of Appeals in the middle of the decade, had done a lot of legal work. Um, you know, pretty much a known Republican. I think it's fair to say, more or less, um, had appointed Brown to service as legal counsel in the trial. And people remember that the rules allow. The, the or you know almost you know since he helped write the rules invite the lieutenant governor to hire somebody to serve his legal counsel as he presides over the trial and there's some precedent for this in past impeachments so this is a big story for a day or so the next day uh, Judge Brown sent the lieutenant governor a letter a letter declining to accept the invitation to to serve this role it's been reported that Patrick's staff met with Brown. You know, presumably as part of a vetting process, I think it's not too much of a reach to think that, to discuss what, you know, uh, I think a Tribune story, actually it was a, a Dallas Morning News story, I believe, quoting the letter from Brown, I to discuss any political activities and relationships to the participants in, you know, quote, unquote, in LaFerre Paxton. Um, Brown said he had no recollection of any matters, I think, at that time, but apparently on Saturday he, quote-unquote, remembered that he and his wife had contributed $250 to the Eva Guzman, camp Eva Guzman campaign in November 2021 during her unsuccessful primary challenge to then-incumbent A.G. Paxton. Critics were skeptical, um, uh, it, you know, on both sides about what was going on here. But it appears that Lieutenant Governor Patrick is still searching for an advisor now. I mean, you know, I, I you know, I was thinking, I wonder what Wallace Jefferson is up to. But my my guess is Wallace Jefferson probably gave more than two hundred fifty dollars. I don't know. We need to do well, some that's due diligence. Just, if that's on disqualifying. That. I mean, so we'll have to look. So, so then also in another you know development, kind of you know in the the broader halo of this of the trial, um, Paxton's main or at least most visible lawyer. Uh, the sort of increasingly well-known Tony Busby 
announced that he's going to run for a Houston City Council seat. Now, Busby had previously ran for mayor against Sylvester Turner and lost. Um, and this, of course, has drawn all kinds of discussion about how Busby might implicitly or explicitly use the trial as more of a forum than he already has for his public profiling with his political ambition in Houston. You know, I think that's like the, the the clear and obvious sort of question read, although there is part of me when reading that that was sort of thinking to myself about what kind of, you know, potential latitude he might give himself or claim as a candidate. Because, you know, in the context of the gag order going on in the trial right now, you know, yes, that exists. But there's also, I mean, a First Amendment protection, especially for political speech. So as an actual active, you know, candidate for office, and again, I'm, you know, look, I'm not trying right. to say I know what Tony Busby is thinking because that's impossible for me to know. Right. But it does, and I do think, you know, whatever he's is as sincerely as he's running for anything, he's running for the seat, sure. But I do think it's kind of interesting. He's in this position where, on the one hand, he's dealing with one of the biggest sort of political dramas, you know, of the state. In real time and at the same time, he's going to be running for office where presumably like he's still not supposed to talk about any of what he's doing over here where he's actually right. going to be known. So it's kind and of – it's just an interesting sort of – Yeah, the dynamic, dynamic there is very, very curious. You know, very interesting for those – you know, he, I can't remember what place it is, but he's running for a council seat kind of West University, yeah. River Oaks, I think. Or West University, I think. Um, and I'll leave the details of that to the Houston people. Um, so step back from all this. Right. If you keep in score at home. Tony Busby will be defending Ken Paxton while running for a Houston city council seat. And while it's been a story, seems okay. Nobody's saying, hey, you can't do that or you shouldn't do that. Or, uh, you know, I'm sure there's some people saying he shouldn't, but nobody in the process. Not, it doesn't seem to be changing what's happening. Right. So that's okay. Busby running for uh, – Ken Paxton's campaign owes lieutenant governor and presiding officer of the trial Dan Patrick's campaign – $125,000 from a campaign loan. These things happen, you know, in the course of campaign. That's okay. Uh, Senator Angela Paxton's campaign owes the defendant's campaign, that is uh, uh, suspended Attorney General Paxton, who is her husband, $600,000, also a campaign loan. She doesn't have a vote, but will still be counted as part of the jury in the denominator in the votes on motion. Um, you know, the the others are voting on for motions and conviction or acquittal. That's more or less okay, apparently. Now, they've tweaked that a little bit. And, you know, you know, word on the street is that that was, you know, a very contentious issue in the Senate caucus meeting prior to the adoption of the rules. But still, more or less okay. Um, on the non-financial side, uh, the Attorney General, you know, recruited a state senator, Brian Hughes, to request a legal opinion that helped avoid for foreclosure on the the properties owned by Paul that were up for for auction and, you know, owned by Paul and, and for his businesses. One of the impeachment charges. One of the impeachment charges. And, and, and that was one of the things that was fleshed out in some of these counter filings and some of these documents that were dumped. And. There, there was a little note in there that, you know, I, I noticed there was a line that said that Hughes did not know what this was pertaining, that this was connected to Paul. Uh, so Hughes remaining a juror, though. Okay. Sure. I guess so. Um, back in the financial lane, the Defend Texas Liberty PAC, which has been a leading defender of Paxton, donated a, donated a million dollars to Lieutenant Governor Patrick's campaign. And then loaned it another $2 million. And the timing of this $3 million transaction, these $3 million in total transactions, was in June after the House impeached Paxton. That too seems to be okay. Right. No, no recusals or, you know, some yeah. bad press about it, but well, nothing. A couple million. And then Judge Mark Brown gave Eva Guzman 250 bucks during the 2021 primary. That's not okay. <laughs> now, you know... I'm going to be a little bit disingenuous. I wish I could clarify why this all makes sense in this moment. I'm not sure that I can other than a gen general characterizations of the process. So, you know, for now, we'll file this portion of the podcast under the keeping up with the trial, uh, uh, you know, sort of and put it in, in the keeping up with the trial column. And we'll circle back maybe a little bit on what to make of this. Um but, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot, and it's the subject 
and and it's also a legal subject now of the filings that you know there's it's important to keep in mind this is not your normal I don't even want to say normal it's not a legal trial per se yeah I mean I think I think you know the way you laid that out it really you know for for anyone who is sort of whether they're part of the process or just watching the process who wants to say okay what you know what ideal type is this? You know, like what sh- what is this and how? I mean, I think what's been going on a lot is this idea. Well, this is a criminal proceeding, and here's the way that it's right. deviating. This is mostly what's coming out of of you know from Paxton's camp is saying, this is a criminal proceeding, and therefore it needs to meet all these thresholds and benchmarks. But I think what you just laid out is a really clear point here, which is, you know, this is not a normal trial, right? All the participants, the defendant, the prosecution, the judge, and the jury have connections to each other because they're all responsible to the same people, both voters and donors and each other in a lot of cases, right? And so, you know, to complain or to pretend otherwise or to ask for a process that should look certain, it's just, that doesn't exist here. Like all of those, all of those sort of baseline assumptions about how this process works, you know, a dispassionate judge who has no connection to the case, jurors who are a juror of your peers, which I mean, maybe these are jurors, jurors of his peers, I suppose, but who have no prejudice. That's the thing that's actually closest. Yeah, it's the closest. But in a much narrower sense than we're used to it. But also an unbiased jury of your peers, right? right? You know, I mean, this is just not something... That exists, but I think there's another way to look at this too, which is I think is important because there's a lot of sort of you know, I don't know, rock throwing from the cheap seats or whatever. Which is that to say, you know, there's no simple rule or code of conduct that's going to somehow make this work in a way that's going to look like a jury trial that doesn't disqualify half yeah. or more of the participants, or just basically acquits Paxton and says, hey, we can't deal with this because we're all so you know entangled in it. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean. You know, I guess I want to, you know, underline a couple points out of that. One is, you know, as we've gotten closer to the trial, mm-hmm. you know, and we've got, and we're going through the pre-trial motions and all of this, it is becoming clear that that observation mm-hmm. in a, in terms of the contention between the two sides, yeah. um, is taking on kind of a, a political or not political. Well, I, it's taking on a political, but it's also taking on, you know, it's mapping on to the adversarial roles of the two parties right. in an interesting way. In that, you know, if you do go through and you read all those motions as you kind of referred to, Paxton's defense is trying to mount, is trying to get for their client the most robust protections that exist given the Texas and and federal constitutions in the criminal justice system and in the judicial process. Mm-hmm. Understandable. A large part of the response to those motions by the House managers and their lawyers was to say, yeah, that's not what this is. Right. Right, which is kind of the point we're making, we've been making all along. But, you know, I, I guess the point I'm making is we've been making that point for a while, but in a very different kind of context mm-hmm. And I just do want to flag that when you make that point now, I think we've had the luxury a little bit of making it from, you know, you said the cheap seats, the cheap seats, and if I was going to be really beat us up about it, I'd say that. But, you know, from a different perspective, right? And now these arguments are really entering into the adversarial process in a way that, you know, I suppose I should have anticipated, but I hadn't really thought through that this would be so front and center. I mean, a couple of the, one of the filings in particular, you know, goes to the well. I was on a panel with some academics for the, for a Tribune event a couple of months ago. And, you know, I mean, I, we were joking about, you know, they take away our political scientist cards if we didn't mention the Federalist Papers. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Federalist Papers loomed pretty large and, and, and the recourse to the understanding of the political nature of the process in the, in the Constitution and in the Federalist Papers looms very large in all this and was a big part of one of the pleadings, at least one of the pleadings. Yeah, and I think the thing that I, you know, that I want to take away from this, I mean, you know, you and I, you know, what I think, at least I pride myself on in a lot of ways in terms of, you know, what I can contribute here. And I think what we do a lot of contributing is sort of trying to provide context and sort out these sort of different signals that are flowing around and try to make sense of it. And, you know, I think to your point, you, you, know, you kind of said before, you know, you'd like to clarify, but, you know, and it's like, this is not something where you can easily kind of line up the arguments on one side, line up the other and say, well, these guys are arguing this and these guys are arguing that. And therefore, this is where the co- – it's not like that. I mean, this is such a yeah. complicated space. And part of it is the quasi-judicial, quasi-political nature of it means that, you know, you have, you know, in, in some sense, 
you know, one side making a set of arguments under one set of circumstances while making another set of arguments in another set of circumstances. And in some way, you kind of combine them together and say, well, those don't go together. So, for example, the idea here is, you know, to your point, and I think, you know, look, this is, I have, you know, there's no judgment here. I think this is what you imagine in in, in a in any sort of judicial process in the U.S. is a very, you know, well defended, well-prosecuted adversarial system. They, you know, Haxon's yeah. lawyers should mount every possible argument that is available to them to, to, to help their client, just as, you know, the, the House impeachment managers and their lawyers should, you know, basically try to get the best and most favorable uh, set of circumstances for their case. That's just what is going on right now. It's not usually, it's not common, yeah. I think, for outsiders to watch this, even in the judicial system, like under a regular set of, you know, so, <laughs> under a Unless regular- you're a regular right, watcher of Law & Order, the yeah. classic- the classic law and order. Yeah, maybe the classic law. But even though I don't think the classic law of order, law and order is like, okay, pretrial motion phase, you know. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, you have this idea that, you know, they're saying, well, this is a criminal trial. You know, this this is what it should look like. He shouldn't have to stand. He shouldn't have to be uh, cross-examined. There's all these sort of pieces. And on the other hand, they're also kind of making this argument, Paxton Flores, that like, look, you know, the voters already forgave him. Right? right. You know, there's this other side of this, which is say, you know, as a political matter, this is settled, actually. And that's actually another big part of this. And so it's kind of interesting in some sense. So, and I'm not saying that as a, as a ding against them, because what I'm actually said before that was like, they should pursue every, right. every avenue and argument. But if it doesn't seem like there's a lot of consistency within. Well, yeah. Well, I think part of the issue here is that, I, you know, and I think, you know, we don't have to beat this to death, but what serves their client, what serves their client best right now, if you're. Ken Paxton and his lawyers is to strive for more legalism and, and to portray this as more of a legal process than frankly, just to, you know, to be clear, then it is. Yeah. And I would say this right. too, is that, and you know, and that argument can actually serve both the legal and the political, right? So, so in this case, you know, a lot of the, you know, if you think about when Paxton wasn't, was impeached and you think about what a lot of his defenders were saying, which there weren't a ton, but among the defenders, what they would say is they were pointing to the process. In most cases, they were not defending his conduct. They were not saying, you know, the allegations against him were untrue or unfounded. They were saying the process that led to this was, was not, was suspect. Right. And so in some ways, you know, part of this is to say, look, you know, we want to give our client every protection we possibly can as if he was a criminal defendant in a, in a normal trial. But also by by laying out the idea that somehow this this trial is not meeting this, you know, sort of somewhat arbitrary, you know, set of standards that they've set up furthers the political argument that, you know, he's being railroaded, that the House is, you know, run by a bunch of Democrats, which is part of this, you know, right. this kind of, which I think is one of the more crazy arguments out Democrats there. Democrats and rhinos. Democrats and rhinos, right? Uh, and that therefore, you know, ultimately, but that that pressure, I mean, I think the goal in some ways is for that pressure to get back around to the jurors so that they hear yes. from their voters, well, this process is messed well, up. Well, yeah, and that raises the point that we've talked about a bit, you know, that you know, these pages and pages and pages of briefs are also in motions are also serving, you know, serving the purpose of doing what they're prohibited, you know, both sides are prohibited from doing by the gag order. So, yeah. And Tony yeah. Busby has been really the best about this partially. I mean, there's a lot of, there's an asymmetry here, which I think is important. You know, there's a lot of people spending money sort of on Paxson's behalf or on, his, you know, in his public defense, you know, in terms right. of regular players in Texas politics, there's not like a big tranche of money floating around of, you know, the people who want to prosecute Paxton making the counter argument. So, right. so you've got sort of the combination of that, you know, some you know, Paxton lawyers can't just go out and make, you know, broad based claims about, you know, how nefarious the house is, but they can put in a filing and then read it. Sure. And so we're going to see a lot of that. Right. And, and know that there are, you know, parallel organizations doing that for them anyway. Exactly. Right, to be fair. So you gave us a good hook for a transition yeah. and then we went on anyway. But, you know, so, you know, in a post this week, we used one of the arguments well, between... Hook's still there, which is this is still a public strategy, yeah, even yeah, in, no, high, hidden in all this legalism. You know, in a post this week, we used one of the arguments between the host manager, the house managers in Paxton um, in the motions filed before the impeachment court as a point of departure or an invitation maybe is a little more accurate to, to round up results from, you know, wait for it, our polling on the attorney general and his legal, ethical, and political troubles. Um, now, threaded through several of the filings was the attempt by the Paxton defense to invoke fairly obscure and overlapping 
Texas legal doctrines known as the prior term and the forgiveness doctrine. Um, now, we do a lot of explaining in the piece, but the short version is that the defense, or shortish, is that the defense moved to dismiss most of the charges against Paxton by claiming that there was legal precedence for concluding that the effort to remove Paxton from office violated the sanctity of elections because the voters had already forgiven him by reelecting him. Right. And so this sort of raises this broader issue of, you know, I mean, I'll just put this, this is, this implies something, right? I mean, ultimately when you say this, this implies that voters had in fact, uh, you know, learned about Paxton's legal problems, what, you know, the, the, some of the vast scope of them all, who knows, right? I mean, it's kind of unclear had, you know, basically adjudicated them in their own minds, you know, one way or another with whatever information they had. And nonetheless, you know, or even because of their adjudication, decided that they should reelect him. Right. Okay. And hence the term forgiveness, right? right. In other words, this forgiveness doctrine. And, you know, as we're saying, you know, this is, you know, there's a lot of legal underbrush one could unpack here. We get at some of it in the piece, and there's a lot about this in both motions, particularly in the in the house manager's response. So I would point you to that. And when we post this on our website, we'll post links to some of these documents. Um, you know, in addition to the to the to the blog post, because you know the house managers, as you might imagine, found many, many legal reasons why the whole notion these these notions of forgiveness or prior term were either irrelevant or non applicable to to Paxton's case, and all that stuff will be in the blog site. You know, for the umpteenth time, we're not lawyers. But, you know, look, uh, we have read a lot of logical arguments. And to me, the arguments seem pretty strong. You know, if for no other reason, you know, as, as you were pointing out earlier, that, you know, taken to its logical conclusion in a lot of different ways, these doctrines would lead to kind of, you know, absurd or even silly outcomes, right? Yeah, I mean, you could imagine, you know, if I'm, if I'm someone who's looking like he's cruising to re-election, let's say, in the week before, you know, my re-election or my first election, I mean, is that basically just like purge day? Yeah. Is it like, am I just, am I, am I just allowed to do, <laughs> do whatever, you know, because ultimately I'm going to be re-elected and, and assuming it happened before, you know, my election, I'm, I'm okay. None of these are, are, you know, a problem. I I'm should not, take, take yeah. all the bribes. I'm just <laughs> curious. I'm not calling you on this. I'm just curious and I, and I will fess up to yeah. how, how many of the purge movies have you seen? Zero. Okay. I saw I, the, I saw the first one. Yeah. It's a good use of it. So, you know, you've, no, I, you've I'm, soaked it up, right? But I'm, as you were mentioning, I'm like, wow, has Josh actually watched those purge movies? No, absolutely movies? Like, not. That's something I imagine you watching. No, you should, if nobody, there's <laughs> nothing to update here. Not for me. Okay. But, but I mean, but here's the thing, you know, you may say to yourself, well, that's absurd, but, but, you know, courts actually look at this. They look at the, on the, on the face of an argument, you know, if it leads to an absurd outcome, that's actually something that, you know, judges often consider. And that's why I think, yeah. you know, if you go back and look at the posts that we did and you did a really job sort of digging up where the sort of prior term and forgiveness doctrines have come up. And if anything, you know, the, the sort of, you know, relevant examples of it really don't point to it being applied very broadly or at yeah, all. No, that's right. I mean, and I, and I, yeah. And so, and again, you know, you guys can look that up and, you know, the lawyers and the audience. But it, can, but it raises an important point for at least for where we, where we sit, right. which is that obviously, you know, there's an intersection between this argument and public opinion, right? Because, the underlying logic of this prior term and forgiveness argument hinges on this premise of an informed electorate, right? Or at least an electorate, you know, sufficiently informed in terms of both whatever the breadth and depth necessary is to make like a substantive judgment about this candidate, in this case Paxson, in light of the alleged transgressions, right? So let's, you know, we can just say, hey, does, does this depiction accurately describe the Texas electorate? And in one of those moments that are good, I, you know, I like to think of as, you know, a podcast moment rather than a written moment. You know, we started thinking about this, and you know, in a very, in a very narrow sense, right? I mean, we saw they were making that argument. It's like, oh, well, even before they made these arguments, like, oh, you know, we've been polling on this. We've got data about what the public knows, and then all of a sudden, it became, you know, almost, you know, dispositive or you know, relevant to the arguments being made. Right. So we've asked uh, four times, going back to 2016, and as recently as June of this year how much voters had heard in the news about the legal problems of, of Attorney General Ken Pax. And that's it. We're not even saying, we're not looking for specifics. We're not even, we're not even asking people, you know, about, you know, did you know about, have you heard of Nate Paul? Have you heard about his security fraud charges? Yeah. Have you heard, no. We're just saying, 
Have you been like, have you heard about this in the news, right? Is this something that is, you know, ringing a bell for you? Have you heard the guy's problems? And often, you know, we we ask this usually in the context of a bunch of other things, too, just to kind of see, you know, just in terms of things that are going on to see what people are paying attention to and what they're not. And that's sort of the question here is, are people paying attention to this? So prior to June 2023, because June 2023 comes after he was impeached, right? Um, No more than 20% of Texas voters, so one in five, said that they had heard a lot about Paxson's legal issues. After impeachment, it only went up to 31%. So first and foremost, there's no sense in the data that the public has really heard a lot about this, yeah. right? Because I know like some people might say, especially if you're listening to this podcast, you're going to say, but this has been going on forever, surely. And it's like, this is where we let you know. Most voters are generally pretty uninformed. Sorry. It's just a fact. We ask what we do. There's a lot of ways we could go. This. We don't need to go into the details of this right now. We can do that on a different podcast. But generally speaking, you know, most voters' knowledge of things is pretty surface level and does not include a lot of breadth. Right. And this is just one of those things that really, you know, has not penetrated the public, at least according to the data. So nearly half of voters in each poll prior in each survey prior to his impeachment said that they had not that they had heard either not very much or nothing at all. So we can say, you know, again and again, the specific numbers don't really matter here, actually. I mean, the main point is about half of the electorate has consistently said they don't know anything about this. They haven't heard anything about it. It's not aware. So, I mean, just as, just on its face, this idea of an informed electorate on this issue that's that's rendered judgment and forgiveness seems a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, and in the way that people can, you know, say, well, you know, maybe you're, you know, you're, you know, you're you're saying this is half empty rather than half full. I mean, over time, I mean, more people did. You know, fewer people said that they had not heard a lot, but it was still a lot of people, right? I mean, in other words, if you go all the way back to October 2016, mm-hmm. um, more than half, 55% said that they had heard not very much or nothing at all. Right. Now, that does go down, but six years later, yeah. <laughs> right? It's 42%. To only 40, yeah, well, even to April, yeah, oh, to, yeah. to 44 and then 42%. And, you know, in, in October of 2022, so... Yes, for the skeptics, people, it was soaking in some to to more people, but not very much. And I think October 22 is an important point here. That was the eve of the election. We think of that as our pre-election poll. So the idea, again, that, well, when voters were re-electing Ken Paxton, they knew about this. Well, I got to be honest, the data says no. That is definitely, I just, there's nothing here that supports that. The other problem, and there's a, there's more in the data that actually sort of counters this idea of an informed electorate, an electorate that had rendered, you know, basically a positive judgment on Paxson despite this. So it also appears, looking at the data, that the more informed a voter is, was about Paxson's legal problems, all else equal, the more likely they are to say that the House was justified in impeaching Ken Paxson. So when we look at the June 2023 polls so after impeachment, so we asked both how much they'd heard about you know, his legal problems, and then later in the survey, we asked, do you think the House was justified in impeaching him? And, and even though this is obvious, you know, it, it's worth, I think, after the impeachment and after the election. Right. Right. So we're... Exactly. So again, still low levels of knowledge. But when we look at this, we find among people who said they have heard not very much about Paxson's legal problems, 29% thought the House was justified in impeaching him. 10% thought they weren't. 61% didn't have an opinion. Great. They shouldn't, right? They don't know about it. Again, to the point here, that's actually a big number. Although among those who said that they heard some about it, the share saying that the House was uh, justified in impeaching him went from 29% to 52%. Among those who said they'd heard a lot, the share saying the impeachment was justified jumped to 74%. So again, you know, a little bit of a problem here to say that, well, you know, clearly voters know about this and they've forgiven him. Well, actually, voters don't know about it. And when voters do know, they actually thought the House was justified in impeaching him. Now, let's be fair, right? We could say, hey, look, this is just Democrats, Right. This must just be Democrats using this. And this would be partially true in the sense that Democrats have been paying more attention to to Ken Paxton's legal problems and have Republicans threat. Now, take a step further in that argument, though, given that Democrats are not voting for Ken Paxton and the idea is that voters forgave Ken Paxton and then reelected him to office. Well, look, Ken Paxton's reelection to office relied predominantly on the votes of Republican voters. I don't think that's a controversial statement. And Republican voters were paying the least attention to this. Okay. 
At the same time, though, even among Paxson's core supporters, these Republicans, the poll found GOP voters were split on Paxson's impeachment. So overall, 31% thought the House was justified, 30% thought it wasn't justified. And this split held regardless of knowledge. So it wasn't as though the more informed Republican voters said, no, the impeachment wasn't justified. Among those who thought, who had heard some about Ken Paxton's legal problems, 34% thought the House was justified, 31% thought it was not justified. This is among Republicans. Among Republicans who say they had heard a lot, again, a minority of Republicans, about Ken Paxton's impeachment. 42% said it was justified. 47% said it was not justified. So at best, the best interpretation you can have is among Paxton's core supporters who returned him to office, most had not heard about his impeachment or has not heard about his legal problems. When asked about his impeachment, they were split on his justification. And as you, and as they, and even those who had heard a lot about it still split. So the underlying data here, there's a couple takeaways, right? So the first takeaway is, you know, the data does not support this premise that the electorate was informed in reelecting Paxton. I think that's a full stop. And even now, most voters are just starting to pay attention. Right. Second, you know, Republicans have not sp- expressed forgiveness in the hearing now and, in fact, look to be, you know, split down the middle, really, in their response to, to the House's impeachment. And the third takeaway is when voters do express awareness of Paxton's, you know, alleged transgression, uh, transgressions, they do appear all else equal, less likely to be forgiving at this point. Right. So... You know, it casts some doubt in, you know, in two key dimensions on this notion of the forgiveness doctrine, right? Because, you know, on one hand, you know, as we've said, people didn't know that much. Right. And so, you know, you get into the, you know, uninformed forgiveness seems to be to be a kind of empty set concept Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And the more they know, the less likely they are to forgive. Controlling for party. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, too, because I think, you know, one of the things that struck me about when the House managers laid out uh, the case for impeachment, especially in the committee, more so than on the floor, but one of the issues that, that they raised, you know, there that's been less, a, I think, a part of the kind of the, 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 the follow-on arguments and the motions and all that is, you know, they pointed out the fact that, you know, and again, if you've been following this, you know, especially with respect to the securities fraud charges against Paxson, that these charges have been going on for, you know, almost a decade now, or this case. And, you know, that was by design in terms of the defense that, that Paxton amounted. Then, you know, again, we're not going to go into this. Lauren would be a great person to, to bring back to, I mean, you guys talked about this, but in terms of all the wrangling that went on about right. where the case should take place, how, who is getting paid what and how, and all of this essentially delayed adjudication of this, right? And, you know, in some ways what the House, you know, what, what the House manager said when they were laying this out is, look, you know, to the extent that like this has not been adjudicated by a court of law, you know, the voters have not been given an opportunity to actually evaluate all of these these issues. And if that's going to continue to go on, you know, this is where we kind of have to step in. Because ultimately, you know, if, and I mean, somebody, they were almost saying, look, had Paxton just gone to trial on securities fraud and let, whatever happened, they convict him, they, they let him off, and then the voters go and reelect him, okay, fine, hands up, you know, fair enough, right? But in this case, because, you know, essentially of this sort of legal strategy, which is very common of just delaying these things out and drawing them out and trying to bleed out the other side for as long as you can, actually, you know, this has not been adjudicated in public. And and one of the points I think is that, you know, we made in the piece I think is important. And technically, you're presumed innocent. I mean, Paxton in a court, in a real court of law, right, not... Well, a court of law, which uh, yeah. this is not. Yeah, in it, but in it, but in, a, in an actual <laughs> court of law where like these securities fraud charges are going out, currently Ken Paxson is presumed innocent. But absent, you know, sort of any actual case, adjudication of it, a decision by a judge or a jury or whoever's going to ultimately decide that, what essentially, you know, Paxson's offense is saying is even though nobody's actually like adjudicated these issues in a, in a serious sort of legal way in an actual criminal court or a civil court or whatever – we're saying that the voters have, in fact, actually adjudicated all of this in their minds, have come to a determination that Paxton is is fine and have voted him, you know, into office. And both on the face of, you know, what we know about what the public thinks, but also the actual processes that's played out over the last decade. It's kind of ridiculous. I mean, well, I mean, you know, the, yeah, I mean, look, the House managers have pointed out what is seems pretty apparent on the face of it. That in the legal process, the idea, you know, the whole purpose was, or, you know, at least part of the, you know, you don't even have to say purpose. One of the effects of the very common legal strategy of delay Mm -hmm. was to actually prevent the formation of an informed public. That was also part of the strategy of, the House managers will argue, and does seem to be, you know, the point of 
you know, much of the evidence that was, you know, dumped last week that a similar, you know, a similar attempt in terms, you know, from the perspective of thinking about what the electorate knows was made to prevent public knowledge of several aspects of his relationship with Nate Paul. And so, you know, let, let, let the adversarial process take place. But from the perspective of public opinion, yeah. it actually really casts a lot of doubt on the whole construct that there was an informed electorate that was capable of in, you know, any kind of, you know, I mean, I'm going to call it informed forgiveness, but the whole concept of forgiveness, I think, maybe we're even getting into the theological Ooh, here, like presupposes a certain level of knowledge of that which is being forgiven. Right. Yeah. Right. And I mean, and I think, you know, if you think about Just what- to lay it out a little, you know. Yeah. And if you think about what really, you know, I think kicked the house into gear on this in a lot of ways, you know, it was when Paxson came to the house and asked for about $3.3 million to settle the whistleblower right. complaint. And ultimately, you know, what the House said was, well, can we answer some questions about that? And Paxson said, no. Well, you know, I think they were, you know, at that point, you know, you're asking the House to basically write a blank check, almost not a blank check, it's a $3.3 million check, to essentially make this problem go away for him. Yeah. And I think, you know, at some point that becomes a big ask. And I mean, I've said this before, but also, you know, with the FBI undergoing, you know, an investigation, you know, already having indicted Nate Paul, you know, seemingly looking into, you know, pretty seriously looking into what, what Paxson has been doing, you know, I think there was probably a lot of reticence on the part of the well, house. Pretty clearly, to yeah. be To be to be forgiving, but yeah. also, I mean, in some ways, you know, I mean, I, I say this is, you know, tongue in cheek, but it's like you almost, you know, are you a co-conspirator at that point? I mean, you're not actually probably, but, you know, you're sitting here writing him a check yeah. to essentially for, to forgive. And by you, you mean... Well, the Texas... The, yeah, <laughs> the, Texas the, the members of the house's kind of view of themselves and, yeah. Yeah, and then ultimately they're sitting here essentially, you know, aiding him in this process of not actually adjudicating these issues. Right. You know, now, which is, you know, yeah, sort of part of how we got here. And there's, you know, there are a lot, you know, thrust us back into the political, you know, the, the very political dimension right. of some of that decision making. But, um, you know, I, you know, and as we, you know, one of the things that was almost an, uh, you know, I'd like to say I thought of this ahead of time, but one of the kind of unexpected takeaways or the kind of with this has moved my thinking about this a little bit is that, you know, Heartened is too strong a word. But when I saw what the patterns were in public opinion, that as people became more informed, they were more skeptical, Yeah, you know, including Republicans, even if at a lower baseline. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we spend a lot of time in here talking about how partisanship, you know, the current configure of partisanship with ideological sorting and polarization. Negative partisanship. So yeah. strong and negative polarization so strongly colors everybody's fundamental interpretations of what they're the stimuli they're getting from the world mm -hmm. you know in this sense you know we'll see how we feel when the process plays out but you know i'm a little heartened that the public is you know has some healthy skepticism even if we can see that partisanship plays a role, democrats are more inclined to think that it was justified republicans are less inclined but the information is, thus far, has shaped public opinion. I think, you know, maybe a little bit of a plug here, but, you know, we'll obviously be doing more polling on this. Don't want to say where or when to poison the well. But it will be interesting to see if this little ray of optimism or positive affect I have, you know, at the, in this moment kind of carries forward. It's funny because— And I don't—you know, and honestly, I don't know. Yeah, I'm pretty—I'm— uh, I hold a certain amount of skepticism here, you know, and I think part of it is something I mentioned before about the asymmetry in the information environment. I think, you know, the distance that we've had between the impeachment and what will eventually be the trial, you know, sort of the the tactical and totally understandable aggressiveness on the part of Paxson's defense to try to paint a picture of, uh, of you know, essentially – just funny enough, you know, like a more or less corrupt house and, a, and an unfair process – you know, I mean, they are going directly to voters with that. I mean, they, yeah. that is something that they're actively trying. This is a narrative that they're actively trying to, to seed. 
And it's going to be interesting to see how effective that is, because I think yeah. you know, one of the other things that, that this, you know, something that's really important here, I guess, and this is, you know, let me take a step back. Let's put on that social science hat again for one second. You know, this is where the, the lack of knowledge actually really plays to Paxson's benefit, potentially. Because yeah, like, they have a degree of advantage in filling in the gaps. Right. So the idea yeah. is when we think to yourself, you know, okay, you know, let's say you have an opinion on something. Well, first of all, you know, you have to have an opinion, right? So let's just start there. So you have an opinion one way or the other about this. And the idea is the strength of that opinion might be a function of a number of things. But but one of those things might be like how much you know about it, like how many considerations you bring to bear on that opinion. In this case, you know, whether or not Paxson should be impeached, whether or not he should, you know, remain in office, right? But if you have nothing – Right. And let's say someone comes along who you trust, you know, or, you know, you, you consistently hear, you know, the same message or you hear a very persuasive message even, right? Well, all of a sudden, you know, if you think about it, if, if you've got a vessel that's got nothing in it and now that's what gets put in there, well, there's nothing to counteract that and that becomes, you know, essentially sure. what you know. And, and I think in our, you know, sort of information environment, in our media environment, in the way that, uh, you know, people seek out information, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if some of the most committed Republicans in the next poll rally around Paxton, not even necessarily because I think, you know, there's been because they've taken a fair minded adjudication of, of, of the facts, because honestly, that still is what we're actually waiting to have happen right in the trial. But waiting, because, yeah, but you see if it will happen. Yeah. But because, you know, what they've heard is something that they got through, you know, a campaign appeal, some kind of email from, you know, some allied group. Right. You know, maybe some coverage they picked up of, you know, Tony Busby on AM radio talking about, you know, the kangaroo court, like, you know, and that reading from his reading from his briefs, you know, and so I think, you know, we're a little bit of a, you know, an interesting kind of pregnant moment. And I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen next in terms of the way the post comes. And the thing is, I think it matters, you know, I mean, because this is a political process, I think it matters pretty dramatically. I mean, the fact that, you know, after the House impeached, uh, the attorney general, we saw a split among Republicans that completely and perfectly encapsulated sort of the the discomfort among especially Senate right. Republicans in terms of how to how to move on this. Right. I mean, the gag order in some ways, you know, look, on the one hand, we talked about before, the gag order by, by the lieutenant governor, I think, was, you know, in some way a way to try to ostensibly show a process that's, you know, fair. Yeah. It also provides a lot of cover because, you know, most of the people involved in the process don't have to say anything about it right now. Right. And I don't think they want to because there's no obvious sort of direction. There's no there's no signal from their public, Republican voters, Republican, right. you know, especially, you know, committed Republicans as to, as to where they're coming on Paxson. But if we go and, you know, essentially Paxson and his allies have been successful in sort of messaging this and this becomes the first thing that a lot of Republicans hear because it will be the first thing a lot of Republicans hear about this. You know, we come back and now it's 70, 30 you know, don't impeach, you know, they shouldn't have impeached him. It's 80, 20, you know, he should stay in office or whatever. You know, that's not the question yeah. of something along those lines. That's going to put a lot of pressure on Senate yeah. Republicans. I mean, I, I guess my point is I don't, you know, and I don't know. I don't know either. I don't know what it's going to no. look like. I mean, I don't want to say, I'm, you know, I don't want to overplay my optimism here. But, you know, I would not have been surprised yeah. in our June poll had we asked about this and Republicans had been yeah. If we had already gotten right. those numbers yeah. that you were just talking about. No, totally. Right. I mean, that's the thing. So that's, I mean, that's kind of, you know, from our, you know, from our seats, that's what I'm watching. You know, that's what I want to see yeah. what happens because I think that is really going to color the calculations that the people in the process are making, you know, dramatically. And we're really, we're up to the point at which, you know, that part of this game is over. The well, of, there's a little bit of the, you know, I mean, you know, we need to wind up soon. But I mean, I think one of the things that we're seeing is an interesting aspect of this is that. For all that we've talked in the last decade about the importance of factional conflict inside the Republican Party as a driver of politics in the state, mm-hmm. you know, in the context of, you know, demo- waning, put it mildly, democratic influence in the public debate, mm-hmm. this is a very big moment for sorting out this dynamic you were referring to from a political science way of like, you know, the fact that, you know, Republican voters who are kind of in the driver's seat in the political system, you know, they're experienced getting somewhat mixed messages from elite Republican leaders. But most of those divisions have been most have been operative in the most potent ways more in, in relatively limited mobilized circles. Like you talking about it's, strong Republicans yeah. really was an interesting point as I thought about that. 
But, you know, this is going to be a very, very high visibility fight, really most among Republicans. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the idea is... And how those signals sort themselves out is going to be very interesting. And whose signals, you know, wind up getting through more powerfully... You know, yeah. and interacting with pre-exist predispositions about public corruption and yeah, and I mean, and the thing is, is you know, when we talk about you know Republican coalitional factional politics or whatever, usually we're talking more about how high the volume's got to be, right? Not different channels, yeah. And this is just different, right? So the idea here is, you know, again, normally, you know, to the extent that you know, just we talk about this all the time, but to the extent that sort of the far right, most committed, you know, grassroots primary voters, right. however you want to describe them, Republicans. You know, to the extent that mobilizing those people against more center right, you know, center right, right, you know, tendencies in the Republican coalition has been one about degree. Well, they didn't do enough on abortion. They didn't do enough to, you know, secure gun right. rights. They didn't do enough to secure the border. But they were doing stuff all the time, right? right. This is different because we're talking about a different directions, yeah. right? And that is going to be interesting to watch them navigate. Yeah, there's not much in the way of middle ground here, and no. you know, although you know, we'll. You know, I think I've thought that before on these things. Yeah, that's and, right. You know, I mean, to go back and, you know, this is where, you know, one of the gaps in terms of the elite signaling right now, that's a very interesting absence in all this, is the lack of signals from both the lieutenant governor and the governor. Yeah. And while I don't expect either of them to start sending super clear signals, there is going to, you know, one of the biggest questions we've been saying all along is, you know, how is the lieutenant governor going to handle this? What is his signaling going to be like? And I think we've got a lot of, you know, it's a whole other podcast to talk about what those signals look like. So those are one of the things that we're going to be looking at. But I would close by just urging people to go and look at the data. This is, you know, we all, we're saying this all the time. The data on this is very interesting and it will be a good baseline as we move forward and as we, as the trial begins, as we do more polling um, and we see, you know, where public opinion is going to move on this. So with that, thanks to Josh for being here. As always, thanks again to our excellent production team in the Dev Studio here in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Busy time for them with being back to school. So thanks for your, as always, great production support. Thanks for listening. Um, you can find more of the data we're talking about at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. Follow the blog link and you'll find it. And we'll be back soon with another Second Reading Podcast. Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.